from the Upper Mount Samiesville Studios in Samiesville, Pennsylvania, comes the We Talk Games Interview Skype pipe. Oh no, wait. On hangout, hangout yeah. balls. It's Kyle von Cubic. We're abandoning ship on Skype. Yeah, we do one show a month, and on and and, and, and you know that little five minutes a month, you got to eat. You say I'm hey, gonna eat on th- th- these five minutes out of an entire month of how many minutes? I don't know how many. It doesn't have. I know zeros. how much you love the sound of eating while recording. It doesn't end in enough zero. Tim, get me some popcorn. <laughs> Now I'm hungry for crackers. I'm hungry for crackers. Crotchers. Um, You know the history between me and my wife and crackers, right? Yes, you propose with crackers in your mouth. Not exactly, but that's good enough. It was funny, whatever it was. She spit in her face with the crackers. (laughs) That's it. Hey, hey, fellas. Yeah, what? If you're single and you want to impress the ladies, my recommendation would be to shove uh, probably a quarter of a sleeve worth of crackers in your mouth. And then try to say something very sexy to your lady friend while the cracker bits just spray all over her. I think it's a good it idea. It worked for me. Yeah. I'm happily married. I have a child, a house. I'm hey. living the American dream. Hey, anyway. Uh, hey! This is Interview Sarkey, but it's also uh, mid-series programming. So last time I said it's going to be a rerun, it is a rerun, and it's a new rerun. Yeah. Now I'm going to eat. Okay, so today we're going to talk. Who who we got on uh, interview Starcade today? Jez San. Jez Sands. That's right. Now, no, just San. No, Je Sands. I'm I'm willing to bet my mashed potatoes on San. Je Sands is his name. <laughs> Jez Jez with a Z. Yeah. San. No, it's Je with a E and Sands with a Z. No, because he was the founder of Argonaut Software. I know, and, and that's his why. his name put together sounds like Jason, Jason and not the Argonauts. Jason. Why don't you let him tell a story? <laughs> <laughs> this sucks, by the way. This is probably the worst bit we've ever done. What are you talking about? Intro we've ever done. No, I'm sure we've done worse. Yeah. Hey, uh, the reason why I want to do this interview was because I think it's pretty timely right now. With the Yeah, the Super Nintendo Mini or the Super Nintendo Classic being released, and a lot of games on there utilize the FX chip. Okay. And what's also interesting is the last time we did a Mystery Box episode, we talked about the differences between arcade hardware and emulation. And one of the things about emulation for a very long time for the Super Nintendo is that it did not emulate Super FX chip games very well. Well, as an owner of the Super Nintendo Mini, I can say that, yes, in fact, and obviously, the hardware emulates the Super FX chip very well with games like like, um, Yoshi's Island as well as Star Fox. And uh, it's comparable to the cartridge. And with this interview, you're going to learn about that Super FX chip. You're going to learn about how originally it was supposed to be in the hardware, which is a very interesting little tidbit that we didn't know about until the interview. And you're also going to find out that uh, here's a guy who really helped Nintendo define what their look and system was and gave them something that I don't think they were going to come upon themselves, which would be a 3D space shooter. And Boss and Mario, Super Mario Brothers, World Brothers, whatever it's called for the Super... Oh, wait, we don't curse on this one. Yeah, watch your language. This will work safe. All right. Also, see, I thought that the whole reason we were doing this is because I briefly burped out days of thunder well that too i mean oh. you you briefly bring up days of thunder yeah hey which uh, that's is a spoiler for some upcoming episodes i believe did we lose jens jen jez <laughs> do we lose him yeah what do you mean as far as can we get him back on no, the show is, is he dead no he's alive Oh, thank goodness. I think you're <laughs> Keith Robinson. Well, I am, but uh, Jez is my that's age, and that's why, like, I'm I'm even uh, t- I'm two months older than him. So I thought, right. Jesus Christ, like maybe I'm dead. 
Oh, you could be. I could speak to an apparition right now. Well, I'm glad to. I'm glad about Jez being alive. I'll tell you that. I don't know that for sure. Oh, okay. Well, maybe by the time you listen to this, you yeah. know, in the future, maybe he's dead. Maybe I'm dead in the future. I wish Jez San well. You, I'm not so sure about, but Jez San, I really hope is doing fine. <laughs> yeah, because I got to tell you, life's rough. So I hope I'm dead. I try not to listen to any interviews with anybody. It's been a long time since we did an interview, Starcade. They're still out there on yeah. the internet. You probably just have to like use some type of a searching dog of some sort on the fetch engine or whatever. Ask Jeeves. Can I give a global layer blip? Mm. You can go to wetalkgames.com, scroll down, you'll see the Wig Tendo guest boy. <laughs> yes. And you can scroll back and forth and listen to interviews from the past. However, another reason I wanted to do the Jez San interview is because unfortunately it didn't make it on that platform because it was towards the tail end of our very long marathon audio magazine episodes. So there's a couple interviews that were missed and we never got to with interview Starcade. And much like Trip Hawkins, I feel like this interview gives a lot of insight into the industry, how someone breaks into the industry and really gets noticed. You know? Yeah. Also the interviews that are in the Wigtendo the Wigtendo guest boy are just the interview. When interview Starcade, we give you the skinny on it. Sure. We give you some backstory, we give you some fun facts. And that's why I created Interview Starcade. Also, because I wanted to have 10 podcasts I was doing simultaneously. Yeah, that's always a good idea. <laughs> hey, let's listen to Jez Sand. I dig this guy, man. All right, Keith, Jez Sand, let's open it up. London, England. Come in, Jez Sand. Welcome to We Talk Games. Hello there. Hey, it's great to have you uh, all the way from London. You're only the second person that we've had from the UK. The first, of course, being the Father Gill brothers. And I think that you're uh, acquainted with the brothers Father Gill. That's right. Yes, yeah. they used to work at Argonauts, which Very was my good. old baby. Yes, well, we'll get into Argonaut. We'll get into all those uh, good things that you've been involved with and what you're doing now as well. Uh, but first, let's just get this out of the way. Good things come from 1966. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really? Yes, we're both uh, both 1966ers. Wow, which month are you? January. Okay, you're older. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little older. Uh, let's not start off on rocky grounds. Okay. Uh, I don't know where to begin. We'll jump around a little bit here. I think you have to jump around because you've been involved in a lot of games that, well, definitely that I grew up on. You have a lot of technologies that are entangled across the uh, the years. They span the years. I read your wiki, and of course, everyone knows Wikipedia is probably the most exact way to find out everything you need to know uh, without any type of embellishments whatsoever. My wiki's not very good, because oh, I didn't not. write it, obviously. Okay. And, uh, and my wiki's written usually by people that have a, grunt, a grudge against me. <laughs> and uh, so there's several unflattering things in my wiki. I see. Which if, if I was a bit more vain, which one day I might get around to, uh, I will remove. <laughs> yeah, everything that's been written about me in Wikipedia has been removed by Wikipedia themselves, uh, mostly because they say that they don't, it doesn't cite sources, although my entire life has been available on the Internet uh, for the past uh, at least uh, seven years. So, uh, well, the thing is, it's supposed to be a democratic um, encyclopedia. Uh, I feel I should have the ability to modify my own entry, but um, <laughs> how negative it is. So it obviously wasn't written by me. Okay. Well, is it true that you started uh, doing BASIC on the TRS-80? Uh, yes, that's true. In 77, okay. I got my TRS-80. Wow, fantastic. Now, uh, that was, of course, Tandy. Uh Yes. Real Radio Shack. Yeah, Radio Shack. Exactly. Uh, now, what uh, did you have Radio Shacks in the UK? No, we had Tandy, but it is, oh. you know, it's the same company. I see. Now, did you buy any realistic stereos from uh, Tandy? Luckily not, no. <laughs> Although I, I probably did have a CB radio or something from them. but um, and, and I had my, even before my um, TRS-80, I had a electronics kit when I was very young from sure. Tandy. Yeah, me too, of course. With those little spring terminals and the wires and all that stuff. I think I, 
I made my first electronics project with that, like when I was like ten years old or something. So it was, it was a long time ago. Yeah, you could build the AM radios and uh, yeah, and all that. I used to like building that electric shock thing and then <laughs> letting my friends play with that. And Even I remember that. they had a they had a fake lie detector. You would just be gimmicking it. You would be the one that would set it off if you wanted to pretend that your friend was telling a lie. I remember that. <laughs> but if, you know, yeah. I just thought of it. Uh, realistic brand. Now I, you uh, poo pooed on. It, but I remember a lot of audiophiles sort of liked it back in the day, and then they really, were, yeah, they, oh. they later became optimists. Yeah, but they had but I'm from I'm from England. We we have proper real audiophile <laughs> stuff in England. That's true. We invented audiophile. That uh, <laughs> realistic is is not audiophile compared to you know what we we grew up with. When I first started my first band, I remember we used uh, my buddy's realistic stereo as our PA system, and I was singing into this uh, rectangular, giant stereo realistic microphone, and it sounded like pup. Uh, so you were right there. <laughs> but they also came out with a Mini Moog, which I owned the realistic brand of Mini Moog uh, later on wow. in, uh, in the band years there. When I first saw a, a Moog, I never actually knew what it was, because I, I came from the computer side. I, I wasn't really into the music side so I had no idea what a synthesizer was until it was too late and it, it had all been and gone you know kind of <laughs> gotcha so you you began uh, programming on a TRS-80 no love for Texas Instruments I guess the TI-994A or whatever no um, it wasn't into that so I'm in an R-ing between the TRS-80 and the Oregon Scientific okay um, which which had colour I think at the time when the, when the TRS-80 had monochrome but the TRS-80 kind of, I don't know, it just did it for me, so I, I went for that one. And there were some other ones. There was a British one called the NASCOM one, which looked very geeky. There were obviously the Altair and all that kind of stuff, but they were just far too geeky. So I think the TRS-80 was the right one for me at the time. What type of things did you program on there? My first programs were kind of utilities. So I had, I had one that I won an award for which was to make my printer do handwriting. Back in the days when dot matrix printers did really blocky script, sure. I, I wrote a printer driver that anything you printed, it intercepted it and turned it into my handwriting, actually my friend's handwriting, because it was much better than my handwriting. Wow. Um, that won me an award, a programming award, back then when I was like 12 years old or something. Uh, so that was, uh, that was you know, in the early 70, late 70s. Right. Um, that was my first thing. And then a friend and I started writing games on the TRS-80, but I never actually completed any games. I mean, I, I played games. I didn't actually write any games on the TRS-80, although I intended to. And a friend of mine who's now at Microsoft after many years of l losing touch with him, he actually wrote a Defender clone on the TRS-80, hmm. uh, which never got published, I think, but uh, it was very good. But I started programming games after the TRS-80 when I got my BBC computer. Okay. And did they have computer classes in, in schools back then, or was this completely um, extracurricular? They actually did. Um, and in my school, I was the one that started the computer class. So okay. I, I was, you know, one of my first of my uh, group into computers. And actually, I did have one of the first computers in the UK because mine was imported from America before they were selling them, like the year before they were selling them in the UK. So I was pretty early into computers and I could already program before the other people that I knew at school. So I convinced the school to start a computer class and then obviously I knew more than the teacher. So the teacher <laughs> would consult with me on the answers to questions and I would help people with their homework. And I got to sit at the back of the class and play Space Invaders during the lessons. Fantastic. And, and I still got a grade A in the exam, even though I did no work because it was, you know, <laughs> It was all common sense to me. Similar experiences, except I started uh, photography and print shop, so that was not the same right. type of thing. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean about getting flying by with grades uh, on uh, smarts instead of uh, book studying. Hey, uh, yeah. so that's how you got into programming. Uh, now, we're right. the same age, which is great, albeit I'm, a, I'm older. But those, those two months are a, a big deal. <laughs> they are. They are. I'd like to know about your first gaming experiences, uh, standalones, consoles, arcade memories, things like that. My group of friends and I, every Friday night, would meet at the Crystal Rooms in Soho, which is... Still is there, actually, today, but not in the same form. It was the local arcade, although it wasn't so local. It was in the centre of London, and none of us lived in the centre of London. So it was, it was like an hour journey to get to our arcade, but we would do that every 
Friday night without fail. We'd meet there, play every game there was, and then go to dinner, and then go to a movie, and and then go home. So that, that we did that without fail. So we were into arcade games from a very early age, and um, even before I was in the industry, we used to crash the arcade shows, like Jammer uh, was a, a mm. coin-op show sure. that, that came to London, and um, there were some other ones, and we would crash all of those shows and see all the arcade games, play them all for free before they came out, you know. It was a fun time. Arcades in England, were they full of black lights and disco music blasting, or what was, what was the scene of <laughs> arcades there? Uh, I think they've ended up that way now. Um, Back then, I think they were just the, they were lit and kind of serenaded by the sound of their own music. So oh, okay. I, think, I think the arcades back then, particularly this one, the, you know, all the machines were turned up on full volume. And so really the only music was the music from the arcade machines. There wasn't much in the way of background music or lights or anything. But now I think that there's actually not that many arcade machines anymore. And I think they're mostly jackpot machines, you know, slots oh, sure. and so on now. Sure, sure. So I, I think that the, the day of arcades with pure games have gone. Well, I haven't seen any apart from in Japan for a long time. Right on. And yeah, most of them are dancing and playing uh, instruments and not a lot of joystick stuff. Happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, when I used to play games, it was before Dance Dance Revolution. So, sure. you know, nowadays, if you go to a go to an arcade, there are a lot of dance machines with it playing a lot of music. What do you think had a big impact on you? Do you remember a particular machine that you wasted a lot of quarters in? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, all the, you know, Defender, uh, Marble Madness, Asteroids, you know, Joust, um, mm. Star Wars, obviously, that was one of my favorite coin-ups. Some of the Sega machines, Outrun, Afterburner, they took a lot of my time. Sinistar was one of my favorites. Run, run, coward. Yeah, you know, kind of. good stuff. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of people involved with Sinistar so, uh, on, on the show. So Really? Yeah, I'm very, very happy about that. I'm still friends with RJ Michael. He was he was on Sinistar. Okay. That's one person we haven't touched base with yet. Oh, you got to hook up with RJ. He's very cool. Okay, I'll tell Kyle. He, he gets uh, everything organized. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Star Wars. Is that the Vector Star Wars? Were you? Yes, the Ve- that was okay. one of my favorite coin-ups. And obviously, that was a, a big influence on me. Great. We'll, we'll get into that. So you started Argonaut Software, according to Wikipedia, in 82. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I was 16 years old, actually, a lot of this isn't on Wikipedia because obviously... I didn't write Wikipedia. (laughs) But uh, the reason I started the company was, um, uh, it's not well known, but I was a hacker in my youth, before I was 16. In some of the early hacking books, they did refer to me as an ex-hacker. But I actually stopped hacking when I hit 16, so I stayed the right side of the law when I was of an age where I might have got in trouble for it. In my early youth, I was was online on my TRS-80 very early, uh, and on my BBC computer, and... um, I was hacking, as everyone was at the time. One of the companies I hacked into was the first email provider in England, uh, which is called Telecom Gold. Mm. And that was the only email system that anyone used in England at the time. It was run by British Telecom. I had figured out how to hack into their system, and then I'd written them a report on how to plug the city holes so that other people couldn't hack in the, the way I did. And they actually paid me for that report. And the reason why I started Argonaut Software was because um, I didn't want it to look like I was some 15-year-old guy writing a security report. So I wanted to pretend I was working for this company that had done the most security report. And so I started Argonaut when I was 16 years old. And my first job, which wasn't very much money, but it, you know, it's 500 pounds when you're uh, 15, 16 years old, <laughs> sure. is, 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 is good pocket money. So I, I wanted it to look like it was a bigger, more important company, and I was just a junior employee of that company. Oh, I see. Uh, and the reason it's called Argonaut is because my name with initials was J-San, as in J-San and the Argonauts. So, <laughs> uh, so that was a little pun, and, you know, never really got mentioned after that, but... Uh, that was the thinking behind it. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, see, so we're... So then after that, I, I continued doing security for a while, and I developed some copy protection systems that were in use with some of the early video games, hmm. uh, particularly the ones made by Acorn. So I effectively became, you know, poacher-turned-keeper, and I was, you know, in the security business for a year or two. And then I wanted to write my own computer games, and then, that, and then I did Star Glider. 
Yeah, let's spend a little time on Starglider. You mentioned uh, being influenced by the Star Wars uh, vector game. And taking a look back on uh, Starglider was very interesting to me because I haven't played it, you know, in years and years. So it has like the, uh, has a raster dashboard, which creates a, a play field in the middle, which I don't know what the technical term is for, but it's, uh, I call it a postage stamp. So you have less real estate to be moving uh, objects around. And the graphics look vector. Now, is that true vectors in there? Or how, yes, how it was. Start, so the story behind it was I was very influenced by the Star Wars coin-op, and I loved it. And I even bought one for my home, and I actually played it a lot. And... Um, I was negotiating with Atari at the time to get the rights to do it for the home, and I really wanted to do it. And then all of a sudden they broke off discussion with me and said, no, we don't want to do it. So at that point, instead of building a Star Wars coin-op, I wanted to do something that was similar, but in my eyes better, Uh, certainly different, but using similar graphics technology. So I, I... played around a lot with vector graphics and I figured out how to do it and I figured out how to do it really fast on a not very powerful computers and I designed some math technology that could multiply numbers very quickly and divide numbers very quickly which you needed to do to do 3D math mm-hmm. and actually I one of, my, one of the first things I did was sold my math routines to Sublogic which is the company that did Microsoft Flight Simulator oh okay and, and, the, and they bought the, the because Anyone that does 3D games and even 3D fight simulators, they all have the same problem, which is how to do 3D math quickly on a very um, low-end CPU. And I had figured out a way of doing that very efficiently. So even before I used it in my own games, I sold it to other people to use in their games. So, so there was my 3D math in some other people's products. I see. That wasn't the first time that I did that, as you'll, as you'll hear as we go on further. But I was building this game called Star Glider. I actually had bought a Mac, a, a classic Mac, mm-hmm. to learn how to program a 68,000 um, assembly. Uh, actually, no, I had a QL before then. Uh, so I bought the Mac, and I used that as a development system. Uh, this is before the Amiga and the Atari ST computers came out. Okay. When the Amiga was announced, I went to the first developer conference, when it was still codenamed the Lorraine, and then the Atari ST came out. So I, I had Starglider running on both of those computers very, very early, like literally before they came out. And as you probably remember, I made a disc so that the game was sold so that the Atari and the Amiga versions were on the same disc. And that was considered, oh. you know, kind of cool. Sure. But actually had, had the wrong effect uh, for me. Um, <laughs> because um, the, originally I did it because I thought that if the retailers only needed to stock one version, they would stock more because they didn't need to divide up their stock into Atari and Amiga versions. So I thought it would help me increase sales and reduce the burden of stock complexity for the retailers. Mm. Uh, it had the opposite effect, unfortunately, because they, they realized that they didn't need to stock two sets of copies. They just needed to stock one set of copies. Gotcha. And um, so, no, it didn't work the way I planned. So my, my technology solution to the problem didn't solve the right problem. Starglider, when did that come out? I mean, around how old were you? It was uh, mid-ish 80s. Okay, that's right. That's I right. think I, I'm a bit hazy on the 80s, but I think it was 86 or 87, something like that. So you were still a young fella. You're still uh, oh, yeah. right yeah. in the early 20s there. Uh, yeah. This is where we'll probably jump around a little bit. When you look at Starglider now, uh, like a YouTube video, or if you actually go back and play it, and you flash forward and see Star Fox, you can see the foundation for playing Star Fox. Uh, yes, really. In fact, this, we, this. Absolutely. And we are, we've skipped a lot, but that's okay. I skipped straight to Starglider. I had done one or two other things before Starglider, but Starglider was, you know, the big one for me, the, the entree into, into computer games. So, yes, w- uh, when we first started working with Nintendo, we built a Star Glider running on the NES, on the 8-bit NES, okay. called NES Glider, and we showed it to Nintendo. We had done it purely with reverse engineering. We'd, we'd, you know, we'd figured out how to program their machine. We'd figured out how to do vector graphics on a bitmap machine. You know, we'd, mm-hmm. we'd done all sorts of very clever stuff. And then we showed it to them, and, and they were blown away, and they did a big deal with us where they wanted three or four games from us, but they didn't want them in their exact form. They wanted us to work with Miyamoto-san uh, in Nintendo's headquarters in Kyoto. Wow. And they wanted to match our technology and our kind of 
3D games experience with their creativity and character design and their game design experience. And they wanted to marry the two teams together. So we actually had some of our people full-time in Kyoto, inside uh, Nintendo's office, working directly for Miyamoto-san. And I would regularly fly back and forth every month, holding classes with Nintendo, teaching them how to do 3D games, <laughs> and uh, working closely with Miyamoto-san and Izushi-san and a bunch of other Nintendo excellent people. And so we had a very close relationship with Nintendo in the early days. Wow. Did you spearhead the Super FX chip? Yes, it was, it was my idea, and... It came out of a conversation where, uh, having programmed our 3D game on the NES, and then we reprogrammed it in a week or two on the SNES when they gave it to us, uh, before it came out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they were impressed but also disappointed that it wasn't significantly better than the NES. And we told them, well, you know, you haven't built a machine designed to do 3D, and had you done that, it would have been much better. So we said, well, we could do that. And I was completely bullshitting because <laughs> we'd never designed any hardware before, and they wouldn't even have a clue how to do it. But we did know 3D technology, and we were really good programmers. So we had an idea how to do it. But I told Nintendo that we would do it for them if they funded it. And they did fund it. And I hired very smart people to lead the team, and we built the SuperFX chip for them. So it was 100% our design. In fact, we codenamed it the Mario chip, which stood for Mathematical Argonaut Rotation I.O. chip, input-output chip. I see. Uh, and they were the ones that called it the SuperFX chip. We actually called it the Mario chip. I gotcha, gotcha. Well, I have, I have a shirt with uh, the SuperFX chip on it for Star Fox, <laughs> of course. I mean, they were good memories um, because, you know, Nintendo... We had a massive advantage working with Nintendo because they knew games, they knew marketing, they knew how to you know, be very creative. We knew technology, we knew 3D graphics, we knew a bit of hardware. You know, So we were very complementary and we worked together extremely well. So for a few years, the relationship was excellent. And I don't want to get into uh, get too far off topic. I definitely want to go back and, and touch on some of the uh, other titles that you you worked on. But I did find it interesting that uh, at the time I was a Nintendo rep around that same time when I had to go out and spread propaganda about the two CD add-ons that Nintendo was going to release that they had in the works. Uh, one was under negotiation with uh, Philips, and the other one was uh, the Sony PlayStation. And then you know they they bailed out of both of those. But you were actually working on that 3D chip technology or the 3D technology with... That's right. I mean, when, when we designed the SuperFX chip, originally it was intended to go inside the American Super Nintendo. So oh. we had designed it before the Super NES came out, and Nintendo wanted to put it inside, but because it would have added like $5 to the cost, they decided to put it inside the cartridges instead and make people buy it in the game instead of in the system and then when they had the when they were doing the original playstation or the original whatever it was add-on it was going to be inside that and um i see it could have been and you know we had we had designed it to be able to work that way and it didn't just do 3d graphics as well the super effects chip also um, could do things that the snes couldn't do but should have been able to do like rotate and scale sprites Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so yoshi's island uh, one of my favorite games oh. was actually designed around what the Super FX chip could do for it as well. So it wasn't just for 3D graphics, it was for general graphics. Because the Super Nintendo as a system could only scale and rotate backgrounds, right? Before the- Yes, that's right. Yes, okay. in F0 style, it could only, exactly, it could only scale and rotate one image. Uh, which was used like an F-Zero, it couldn't scale and rotate individual sprites and have them all on screen at the same time, which which with the Super FX chip we could do. We Not just scale and rotate individual sprites, but we could have an unlimited number of sprites on the screen, whereas uh, Nintendo's hardware traditionally could only have like eight or some multiple of eight sprites um, on the screen. And it was, it was very oh, limited gotcha. doing it in hardware, whereas we'd done it uh, with graphic software instead. Right on, right on. And the, I mean, the Super FX chip was actually one of the world's first RISC microprocessors, uh, RISC. Sure? And it was for, for several years, it was the best-selling RISC processor until the ARM CPU became standard in GSM cell phones and then sold gazillions of, of CPUs. And now the ARM is the world's best-selling CPU by a huge margin. But there were a few years when the Super FX came out when it was 
when, when it was way up there. Wow, that all that all makes sense. It all ties together. I don't ask questions I know the answer to, so I'm always uh, surprised <laughs> at what I find well, out. There's a lot of this background story that isn't really published, or if it is, it's kind of in obscure places. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, let's talk about well, what, what do you think was uh, important points in your life, uh, periods of your life that uh, you want to share? I think getting into video games is very important. I think um, being, you know, I had this fascination with 3D graphics, which for many years I was one of the few people in the world doing it, and then all of a sudden every game is 3D now. So sure. I was kind of like one of the early guys doing it. I don't know if I was the pioneer, but I was certainly one of a very small handful of people doing 3D games very early. At the time when it became ubiquitous and it became extremely competitive was the time that I finished with computer games and moved into gaming, which is uh, um, poker and casino games and the like. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. And that's where you're at now, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a tech entrepreneur now, so I do a whole bunch of things. I'm involved with multiple companies. But, you know, my my baby that's a follow-on to Argonaut is called PKR, and it's an online poker company. But are you also involved in Origin 8? Yes, yes. Origin 8 is uh, an iPhone games company, and I am involved with that. I love uh, Robot I- Rampage. Oh, great. Yeah, that, wow. was, that was at the top of the charts there for a while in the States here, and uh, that's when I picked it up. And I really, really, you know, I have it for the iPad, so it looks beautiful. It has everything that a good iOS game needs. It's simple, yet uh, challenging, and uh, it looks great and plays great. Thank you. There were quite a few games we did that... You know, should have done better, really. I mean, uh, um, unfortunately, we didn't make Fruit Ninja, which we had. But yeah. we, we did do the game that they ripped off or were heavily oh. influenced by. You know, we were the people that invented that kind of slash mechanic. And we did that in one of Origin 8's first games. It was used to very good effect in Fruit Ninja. But we definitely did it first. What, and what game was that? It was Monster Kill. Ah. Okay, well, I have to pick that up and... Uh, yeah, and, uh, I think Fruit Ninja's a much better game, but Monster Kill was the first with that dynamic. Well, um, you had a company called Monsters, Monster something. I have a... Yeah, the company used to be called Just Had Monsters. Oh, they were like It was a division of Argonaut. When okay. Argonaut hit the wall, I helped them buy themselves out, and it became Ninja Theory. Uh, and right. it's, it's doing pretty well. Uh, you know, it's, it's had a few very cool games, and it's got a few more very cool ones coming up, okay. including the prequel to Devil May Cry, which is um, on the horizon. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, let's talk about some of the titles that you were involved with that I recognize that other, uh, okay. other of our listeners might recognize. And you were involved, actually, with a lot of franchises. Now, is that because of the parent companies <laughs> that you were doing business with, like Mindscape? I know that you did the Days of Thunder, and you did a... Yeah, so, well, I think some of those were... There was a time when the only games you could sign up deals for were games of other people's properties uh, and some of the games we signed up were other people's games you know we started with afterburner mm. um the the coin op we were one of the few people that could do it in fact, i personally wrote i don't know if you remember the coin op the balls at the beginning that spin around in 3d sure of course uh, yeah. and change change shapes and morph into different shapes and then you blow uh, up. i wrote that bit of the code okay uh, that was that was my only contribution. I didn't write any of the game, um, <laughs> but I wrote the 3D balls. So that that was fun for me. So we did Afterburner. We did um, the Mindscape Days of Thunder. We did Harry Potter 1 and 2 for Electronic Arts. So we, uh, Catwoman, unfortunately, we did that too. Um, oh, you, so blew my we, big, uh, you blew my big gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Um, we did Alien Resurrection. That was a, a great uh, game. So, yeah, we've, we've done our fair share of licenses. Obviously, we preferred doing original, you know, our own original creations, but there isn't always a market for that. And you have to have the right IP, and you have to be at the right place at the right time. You have to find a publisher that has a lot of money to spend on marketing a property, doesn't mm-hmm. mind marketing someone else's property, and really likes what you've done. So it is actually very hard to get publishers to sign up original IP that has been developed by a game developer and it's much easier 
should just sign up and do someone else's property uh, and make a, an original game of their of their IP. Sure, sure. Well, one game that uh, definitely uh, left an impact on me and, and a lot of people's wallets in the states here was Race Driving. Yeah, that was that was um, very cool. That, yeah, that was that was an amazing achievement of what we'd done in such a limited platform to do beautiful 3D, you know, almost as good as the coin up. Or, or so we believed, but no, it was it was, um, it was amazing that, that we were able to achieve that, and we we really enjoyed that. That was a very important title for us. Was that the first game with instant replay? Do you know? Uh, I have no idea, to no. be honest. We did do a number first, but that isn't one that I recall. I mean, it's entirely possible that it was, but we did. We obviously had some of the first three D games. We had the first three D texture mapping in a game that was in Star Fox. We had that the, the the boss at the end with a the rotating cube. That was sure. the first texture mapping ever used in any computer game on any platform. And we did the first three D surround sound in a game. That was a game called King Arthur's World. So we we literally reverse engineered how Dolby did their surround encoding, and we faked it so that it came out in surround sound. If you had a if you had a Dolby system at home, we loved innovating, and we loved being the first to do this or the first to do that. I don't remember whether we were the first to do instant replay. Oh, we, we definitely had the first. We did a fighting, a 3D fight game called FX Fighter, and mm-hmm. we had head to head over the internet or even or direct, you know, modem to modem. We had so we had the first remote fighting game <laughs> where you could play each other and not be in the same room. Uh, so yeah, we, we we loved innovating. What are some of the other tech that you sold to bigger companies? Just off the top of your head, so we we um. We invented a 3D technology called Brender, B-R-E-N-D-E-R, and that was used by a number of game companies and also was used by Microsoft. At the time, it was licensed to quite a lot of games companies, um, and a number of games were built with it, some that we found out about, some that we didn't find out about. You know, they don't. Yeah. We had a license where we could just license it to them, and they could do what they wanted with it and not tell us. And sometimes we found out, and sometimes we got our name on the box, and sometimes we didn't. Gotcha. Uh, so a whole bunch of games were developed with that technology a similar technology to that was also built i mean there were three 3d technologies that that came out of england brenda was one we think it was the most games game centric one there was one called rendermorphics and there was one called renderware and rendermorphics was bought by microsoft and became direct x and became direct became direct 3d oh Um, and in fact i had an awful phone call from a senior executive at microsoft which was very bullish and it it said we're going to buy one of you three, either Brenda, Renderware, or Rendermorphics, and the other two are going to go out of business. And that was what the guy from Microsoft said. Wow. Um, luckily, we weren't reliant on selling 3D technology, and we were actually a games company first mm. and a technology company you know, second or in parallel. So when Microsoft gave away Direct3D and effectively took away the market for us at the time in selling 3D technology, we obviously had our games uh, to rely on. Um, the other company had to do different things. And actually, they went into games after that. Okay. But at least, you know, all, all three companies, they, they were very competitive, and that made all of the products better. Yeah. I think that the, the seminal um, time for me was actually signing up Nintendo, was blowing them away with our technology, mm. them showing us how much they wanted us. They paid us very handsomely for it. We worked very closely with them. But that was, that was a great time because we were really appreciated. And we did a lot of good work for them, and mm. they made some good money, and we made some money. That was a very important time for us, and we grew the company significantly from like you know twelve people to a hundred people almost overnight uh, mm-hmm. off the back of that work. Another important one for us, Croc, uh, was it was the first three D platform game. It was a big hit for us, sold millions of copies, and. Due to the deal that we had with Fox, um, we actually did very well out of it. You know, we it was our own IP. And Croc and Croc 2 made us um, a very handsome profit, which was great. And we also did similarly well with Harry Potter, but we didn't own the IP for that one. But we did, you know, we were given a very difficult IP. And the other platforms, you know, the PlayStation 2 version uh, and so on, were, were going to be very high-end. And we had to compete with those. And we did an amazing job on the PlayStation 1 with that IP. And we, you know, probably did a better game than they had on the PlayStation 2, or at least a competitive game as them so we were on PS1 which sold really well and, you know so we sold millions of copies of that game uh, it wasn't just that it was a fantastic IP an incredibly popular IP but we also did a really good job with it some of the good people from Argonaut have gone on to do good things in their 
life after Argonaut. Obviously, um, you know, uh, Rocksteady Studios, I'm sure you've heard of, they did mm-hmm. the, um, the Batman game, Arkham Asylum. Well, that was one of our teams at Argonaut. Uh, so Jamie and Sefton were two of our senior managers, and they are the two guys that run that. Uh, and in no uncertain terms, they learned a lot from Argonaut. And in fact, I think they're still using part of Argonaut's technology in, in that game, or certainly they did in, in their previous game to that. The spirit of Argonaut lives on in, in mm-hmm. many different companies. Definitely. Uh, Star Fox, I talk about it on many, many We Talk games that after I played that for the first time, I had dreams about flying around like that for <laughs> weeks. It just, uh, it really left an Thank impression. You. Yeah, it really well, left I, an impression. I loved that game, and obviously I loved Star Glider, the forerunner mm-hmm. to it. And I loved all of Miyamoto's games, so, you know, the. My favorite game of all time is still Super Mario World, uh, you know, number four. It was it was the game that I, I played solidly, nonstop, no other game for a whole month, before it came out, actually. So I, I may have been one of the first... I, I may have been the first person in the world to finish it, because I was probably the first person in the world to have a copy of it. Um, gotcha. Yeah, you know, I, I love that stuff. Miyamoto's a huge hero of mine. Just saying, it's been a pleasure. You have definitely influenced a lot of games that I think we've all touched. So thank you very much for taking the time out and being on We Talk Games. And thank you, too. And all the best, um, my older friend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye now. Take care. Just saying, wow, what a great, what a fun interview. That's just so much fun for me to do an interview like that. All right, Keith, let's bring on uh, John. Johnny Capcom and Kavon Kubik and find out what we all been playing and then the Definitely the creator well. of my favorite balls. <laughs> that guy made my favorite 3D balls of all time. Yes. You know those balls on the screen? I did that. Yeah. That's it. Just the balls. That's another great I quote. Did, yeah. Before video games, I was a pinball. I mean, I was a pinball. I mean, I was the balls in Afterburner. <laughs> yes. What a great interview. And like I said at the beginning, but I think you probably cut me off a little. I tried to go. (laughs) I did mention that I went on Wikipedia because I like to know, you know, when people were born, if I'm like the same age as them. Sure. But I try to just go off of what I know. Right. I, I knew his early games, and I knew he was involved with the Super FX chip, and I didn't know that he wanted to make the NES do vector type of 3D graphics and stuff like right. that. Yeah. And uh, I, I had no idea that, you know, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says Star Fox and Super FX on, and I, that's back when I was a NES representative pushing the Super FX chip and say, hey, look, this has this, so why get a Sega CD? It's terrible. And yeah. Nintendo's coming out with their own CD. It's being worked on by Nintendo, Sony, and Philips. Why would you want anything else? It's not yeah. going to be a postage stamp made out of five gray colors. You weren't wrong in that propaganda. I was wrong. It just didn't turn out to be what we expected. They made me a f***ing <laughs> liar, man. <laughs> Thank you, Nintendo. Up till that time, I never lied in my life. And then, all of a sudden, I'm a giant scumbag (laughs) liar. What do you think about that Jez Sand interview, fans? Cool interview. I like that you guys connect on the Radio Shack Tandy level. I know I get a lot of flack because, and it's fair, I normally shit on English games, but it, it, I don't it on English developers, right? right? Like, I just think that the ZX Spectrum is a bag of garbage, but I think that England as a whole culturally did a very good job at pushing the computer on the uh, younger population. Yeah. And from that, oh, yeah. you got a lot of innovative developers from that region who were like, I want to develop something on the Nintendo, so I'm going to break this thing open and figure out how it works, which is incredible. And some of the first foreign third parties that worked directly with Nintendo, like Jez San, were from England. Um, I, we talked about it on the Battletoads episode, Battletoads the arcade game, where uh, the Stamper brothers were the other English developers 
for Nintendo, and they were one of the first. It wasn't like American developers were cracking. You know, Atari was too too busy crawling up their ass with Tengen. Um, These guys were, like, trying to work directly and showing them how to utilize their hardware better. And that's extremely impressive. So as much as I bag on the ZX Spectrum, I want everyone to know that I I respect just San and the Stamper Brothers and other English developers who worked on very garbage hardware. (laughs) Well, I mentioned the brothers Fothergill. Yes. And if you look at their games, none of them look European or what you're considering. And, And I really thought about it now. And you look at Shadow of the Beast and you say... This is really cool drawing. These are really awesome backgrounds. This is a fantastic character, but it's one dimensional, and Mm -hmm. that's maybe what you associate with a European game. But I just think there's either good games or bad games, and I think we have to be there now. Like, there's some French games that are good, Mm -hmm. maybe one of them. Uh, There's (laughs) the, the Korean games that came with my Game Park 32. I thought they were gorgeous. They had terrible yeah. hit detection, but they could compete with any Japanese-style game, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, if not more, the backgrounds were remarkable. Well, remarkable. I think our English listeners will understand my perspective a little bit better, where growing up in the 16-bit era, most of my English experience was through the lens of Ocean, mm. uh, the developer, mm-hmm. which notoriously did not put out good games so because of that i have a prejudice you would say against english games and the the, their art style but you know even a guy like peter molyneux with um black and white i played a lot of that back in the day and very much an english type game or populous sure another example yeah so i played a lot of those games and love those games i it it's an easy target i guess so um to anybody out there who thinks that i don't respect or give credit to english developers just know that just san is somebody i I extremely respect and this is definitely one of my favorite interviews listening back i think it's it's one of our best it's probably in the top 10 because of how giving the guest was with their own history, not even how much they contributed, but how much we learned from them just having them on the show. And I like the fact that when you approached interviews, you would come in with what you knew them for and not much else. And I don't try to put myself over, but I do yeah. try to connect to the guests. And that's why yeah. when I talk to Tommy Tallarico, Tallarico. I was know, just going to bring that up. That's a great example. Look how much we have in common. Now, I'm not trying yeah. to say, hey, I'm, uh, I'm a <laughs> Mario. I'm a <laughs> Tommy Tallarico. I'm just saying that here's something I know about. I'm going to talk about it. And I'm going to be like a casual conversation with somebody I just met. Yeah. I know a lot of people say, like, you know, what the fuck do we know? We only talk about 30-year-old games. But <laughs> when I hear you talk to a guest and bring up recording music on older PCs and the, the hardware and tech that you use to do that with the Moogs or, or using a Tandy or whatever, yeah. and you see that connection happen, you don't hear that on any other show. Right. Not that I know of, at least. Yeah, that's my interviewing style, and right. sometimes I've only had a, f- a few bad now I'm rubs. Putting you I think. Over. No, no, no. I think <laughs> I think I think it only failed maybe once or twice, and I can't help. Well, I know it failed with Ben Heckendorn. Jesus Christ, the guy yawned. <laughs> we right? had a couple of yawners. Well, Walter Day got he was sleeping. <laughs> Walter Day was sleeping. We got him on Walter. video. Yeah. He's barely awake. Well, I cut that out, but that wasn't because he didn't love me. No, no, he's just too busy getting yelled at by Billy Mitchell saying, you're going to run the tapes and you got to put me on the leaderboard. I pay your check. Why are you asking people to bring him televisions? Remember when you tried to do that before with the bottle caps and then you had 95,000 bottle caps in a storage bin? I don't know. That was one of the stories. That, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they were, uh, who cares about that? That's yeah. not, that's who for cares? a different time. Exactly. No, that's for a different time. I did want to defend myself on the Tandy thing. Well, okay. My friend, and I only do this because Jez Sands is now dead. Uh, I don't think he's dead. <laughs> no, because he can't reply is what I mean. I knew it was sort of a bad area to go with audiophile. What I meant was a much longer thing, which I won't get into now, but the, there was only one guy I remember. Remember, I'm 52 now. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> 
Yeah, how about that? Huh? Wow. Whew. And I'm still a loser and, you know, oh, it's, it's crazy. I've not accomplished anything in my life. But the first person I knew that got into computers, I mean, he would build his own computer. That's what you had to do, you know, back right. then. You soldered your own chips on the board and blah, 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 blah. So I knew him and he had the closet, you know, the in the wall system yeah. of stereo stuff. The one guy I knew had it, another guy I knew had it, and they were pretty well off compared to, you know. You needed to be back then for that. Yeah. And so they had in-wall closeted type of full realistic audio. I mean, it had the 8-track, it had the cassettes, it had the giant receiver, it had all this stuff, and it sounded phenomenal. So I think it was the high-end realistic that made it. I had a realistic, too. I gotta tell you, it sounded pretty warm. Yeah. It sounded pretty warm. Listening back to the interview, you know, I heard Jess Sand say, like, in England, you know, we invented the audio file and things. But it's important to remember that, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, and there was no internet. And accessibility to different products were just not there. So you would go to Radio Shack That's true. and you would pick up the best they had. Their high end was probably made by somebody else. I mean, you, you had a, like special order clips and, and all these other type of speakers and whatever you want to call it. But yeah, yeah Germany had like some of the best audio so I, I don't really know what he had in the wall. I would have loved to have asked that. So maybe we can get him back on as long as I don't have to dig him up. Oh, my goodness. Still I just going think he's dead. This. He's not dead. Who's the guy that died? Keith Robinson. Let's which get him I on the show. I think we already did an inter- interview Starcade with uh, Keith. Oh, we did. If we didn't, we should. Because I think we did the double of the Monkey Island people. Mm-hmm. Talk about sure. dead. This show's yeah. been dead. Now we just talked longer than the interview, which is saying. That's okay. That's hey, on course. Everybody, I hope that you dig the interview Starcade, and I hope that you dig the rest of our summer programming. Uh, if you're listening to this out of order of the summer programming in the future. What then, are you doing? What? <laughs> yeah, there must be a lot better stuff on. I mean, we talk about 30-year-old games and 52-year-old people. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, what are you going to get from that? Tell you what, a lot more than a Nintendo Switch. Holy Christ, what a piece of crap. Save it for the show. (laughs) Okay. Hey, take it easy, everybody. Thanks for joining us. And uh, interview Starcade yourself, I guess. I can't remember what I said at any part of this program. Keep on (laughs) trucking.